Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Monday, March 21st, 2011. And thank you so much for joining us. Our guest tonight is Bill Mathis from the National Education Policy Center. Bill, you can't see it, but I've put your picture up on the screen, and welcome. Thank you. Really delighted to have you here. The Future of Education. It's uh, a pleasure to be with you. The Future Education is supported by Illuminate. Uh, I do work for Illuminate. The project I work on is called Learn Central. We have some great sessions coming up. Uh, tomorrow, uh, Frederick Hess on his book, The Same Thing Over and Over, another look at school reform. Then there's a little bit of a break while I travel. Bernard Jane Porter talks to us about local educational engagement. Uh, Carl Speak on Being Your Own Brand. Jerry Mintz on Education Revolution. Then David Schenk on his book, The Genius in All of Us, Barry Schwartz on The Paradox of Choice. You should see there are lots of fun things up there. New on our list is Denise Pope with her book on doing school, um, Douglas Rushkoff on Program or Be Programmed, and Sandy Hirsch from the San Jose State University Library Program. I think it's the world's largest library program. We'll talk to us about libraries and digital literacy. Lots of fun. Hope you'll join us. If you've missed the show, uh, we did talk to Mitch Resnick last week, and that uh, recording is up. Uh, Don Smithmeyer about Sophia.org, the video sharing site. Kevin Kelly, Steve Wheeler, John Seeley Brown, David Perkins. Lots of really fun recordings. Uh, They're all up at futureofeducation.com. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment. We hope that you will find ways to contribute here because Bill is on the telephone. If you put something in the chat, I will uh, try to make note of it and bring it up with him uh, during the interview or during the Q&A, which we'll shift to um, with probably about 20 minutes to go. Uh, I like to go to View Layouts and Illuminate and switch to the Wide Layout. It makes it easier to see the chat. So look for the View menu item at the top of your window, click on Layouts, and go to Wide Layout. At the bottom of the participant window, you'll see a clapping hand smiley face. Those are ways for you to express your feelings during the show. That hand with the green up arrow will let you take the microphone. You'll be raising your hand asking to take the microphone. And during the Q&A, I can give you the microphone and you can actually ask Bill your question directly. Or again, feel free to put your question in the chat. So look to the map. Look to the left of the map for a wand with a red star at the end. And if you click on that and click on the map, you can let us know where you're listening from. You can also do a little bit of a shout out. I'm in Sacramento, California, and we're having hail and thunderstorms right now. So it looks like we're North America centric, although we do have a, a listener from New Zealand. Fun to have you here. Oh, and uh, Prince Edward Island Schools. It looks like the rest of you are United States bound. Colorado, Phoenix, Fort Wayne, Indiana, Andover, Los Angeles, Concord, California, Los Angeles, Connecticut, Fairfax, New York. We really appreciate your joining us wherever you are listening from. And if you're listening to the recording, thanks so much for taking the time to do so. So Bill, this is a show I've really been looking forward to. We titled it Mistakes We Make in Thinking About Education and Reform, and that was probably more my title than yours. 
but could you give us a little bit of back, a little bit of uh, your background, and then maybe a short overview of the National Education Policy Center? Yes, um, I was a school superintendent for 27 years, and so I've seen this in the trenches as deputy assistant commissioner for the uh, State Department of Education, in New Jersey, and also by background, I'm a researcher and psychometrician, which is kind of unusual for a school superintendent. And now I work for the National Educational Policy Center. We're housed at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And uh, there's about 100 policy fellows who are involved in the program. They're scattered around the nation. And these are some of the best researchers in the nation. And what we do is um, look at critical issues in educational policy and commission uh, scholars to do the research review on these things, sometimes conducting original research and reporting through a peer review process as to what we find about such things as teacher merit pay, for example, teacher evaluation in general, charter schools, and other issues that are uh, current for the day. Uh, in addition to the policy briefs, we do legislative brief, which is, which is model code language for whenever somebody wants, to, some state wants to adopt some uh, piece of legislation on a particular area, and we go through what the pitfalls are. Another area, and probably one that gets uh, a great amount of attention uh, and sometimes controversy, is the Think Tank Review Project the Think Twice project, in which we look at the reports that come out of think tanks or other places, and we have them reviewed by eminent scholars. And uh, they say whether the methodology was good, bad, indifferent, good here, bad there, and whether the conclusions hold up. And obviously, when uh, we come and uh, do some research and find out, like we did with the Los Angeles Times, that maybe they did didn't quite do their analysis uh, quite as rigorously as they could, um, it gets into some interested discussions. So I, I, I'm pulling this quote from the website, but it's, you say that you're guided by the belief that the democratic governance of public education is strengthened when policies are based on sound evidence. So who funds what you do? We're, um, I work for the University of Colorado. We get grants. Uh, we've got grants from the Ford Foundation. We've got grants from the Great Lakes Center, uh, out of which is a, a consortium of six states around the New England area. Excuse me, around the Great Lakes area, of course. I'm in New England. And uh, they are in, in part funded by through the Teachers Union. So who listens to but, uh, what? Who listens to who's reading these reports of yours, and where do they make an impact? Well, uh, they get read quite a lot. We're we're looking for a million hits this year, and typically uh, we're going to see if there's a hot issue, uh, we'll be getting three three thousand hits. 
uh, on the uh, website per day, and the we electronically publish and goes out to about sixty thousand people. And if any of the participants here today want to join the website and get onto our mailing list, uh, they can just simply do so by going to NEPC, National Education Policy Center. So I also was hoping that you would mention the Buncombe Awards. Oh, be glad to. The Buncombe Awards is, and uh, we we take this quite seriously, but it's fun too. Is that we actually call through and decide on uh, make these decisions with great debate as to who actually has done the worst piece of research uh, in particular topics in a given year, and we'll come up with six or seven. Uh, different awards uh, each year uh, to honor those who have just really used terribly bad methods to advance a particular partisan point of view. And those are can be found on our website as well. So again, a lot of this is new to me, and and I um, really appreciate the site and and the chance to kind of drill down on it. I was interested that in the category for Buncombe Awards for 2010 that the U.S. government actually received sort of an honorary listing there. Well, yes, they did, and they richly deserved it. Um, <laughs> the uh, thing that they got the Buncombe Award for was the blueprint for the reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. and. Um, it was kind of a terrible piece of work. They came out with their blueprint, and then they got questions as to uh, what research was all these notions of teacher pay and uh, charter schools and so forth on what was this based. And so they were asked to, to put together a research document that supported uh, their points of view. Well, they put together this research document, but unfortunately for a research foundation, it wasn't research. It was a compendium of mostly vested interest and partisan think tank reports. And it was richly illustrated with anecdotes. And one of the Buncombe Awards is the plural of research is not the plural of anecdotes is not data. And they just put together a great number of anecdotes uh, that said this, that, and the other, but it wasn't by any stretch of the imagination research-based. And so we published a book, uh, a short little book, which goes through each of the uh, Obama administration's proposals for the reauthorization and critiqued each of those. And that can be found on the website, too. Uh, we'll be glad to send you the information H publishing to buy you a copy, but you can also get it by looking on the website. Well, I, I want to make sure I'm not drawing too close a uh, connection here, but it was sort of intriguing for me to drill down on the site, see that Buncombe Award, and then to be thinking about the degree to which the federal government is playing a, a pretty significant role in how we're thinking about education reform. And would it be fair to say that you know, many of the messages that we're hearing about education reform are actually um, not good analyses of the data? And, and could we identify some sort of large culprits where the public discourse is misleading us in terms of what really is taking place? Uh, 
Well, yes, um, the federal, the race to the top, uh, which were really only 12, 13 states received money for that, meaning there were 37 losers and these people might be very needy. Well, race to the top was a way to underfund the rest of the programs that needed to be funded. And the federal money that goes into education is, is less than 10% total. And of the ESEA reauthorization, it's about 4 to 5%. And uh, when you start subtracting it away, it becomes a very small percentage of the money. But states are in such a terrible situation, they have to go after these funds, whether they represent good policy or not. And so they've got people to embrace a number of things, such as charters, merit pay for teachers, and high standards, to name only three, which just don't have any research foundation behind them. OK, so I think it might be fun tonight to look at those maybe specifically. And then if you're open to it, there are sort of a number of hot button topics that I've made a list of that I'd be very interested in getting your take on. So um, could we start? Sure. Could we start maybe with the, those three? So it was merit pay for teachers, chartered schools, and what was the third? Um, high standards and common standards. Perfect. The common Perfect. core. So do you want to start with common core? Well, the Common Core, uh, this is supposed to be a non-federal intervention except that every state in the nation has happened to adopt it. And they wanted succinct standards, so they're down to four to 500 pages in reading math alone. And the, to put it in shorthand is people have called for high standards since 1892. So all of a sudden, if students are not able to jump three feet, then they'll be able to jump four feet if we just raise the standards and don't do anything more about it. What's wrong with this particular perspective is that there's no funding and there's no support mechanism to make sure that this happens. There's just no capacity. It's just that people are asked to jump higher, and they just have no means of doing so. And as we see in Wisconsin and a number of other states, is that states are hard pressed for money, and the federal government, uh, though education is supposed to be protected, um, in the budget process, go look at the continuing resolution at all of the cuts that were there for that. And so um, the biggest thing is just to cry for high standards doesn't do a thing. You have to change the instruction. You have to change the quality of instruction. And there's just no effort to do that. Bill, is there a human issue here? I mean, is this not, maybe not limited to education, but it feels as though oftentimes any kind of a, a high profile national issue gets turned into um, sort of politically appealing sound bites. Is, the, is that part of what happens here in education? Oh, of course it is. And um, one of the things that um, 
I would take as the most politically popular soundbite at this point in time was the State of the Union address by the President, in which he was talking about education. And he used the metaphor of competing, and uh, competing internationally. And we used to compete with the Russians and the Japanese, but now we're competing with the Indians and the Chinese. And um, the myth of failing schools and the myth of international competition in education, uh, getting us out of that is just really not there. The Brookings Institute and the Economic Policy Institute both have looked at the job projected jobs mix uh, for the 21st century. And they're not coming up with the kinds of job projections of everybody has to have high skills in math and science. And for every job uh, in math and science that there is open in the United States, there are three qualified applicants for that job. And so that just isn't uh, the case there. And there's no shortage of highly qualified people. There is a shortage of jobs. So I think that was, uh, in fact, maybe part of the article that led me to want to talk to you. I was just at a couple of educational conferences. And the, the Sputnik moment comments and the comparison of the Chinese and, and American economic circumstances uh, being related to education, I think for a lot of people that just kind of went over the edge. Um, that it was too it was too simplistic a story, and I heard many people saying, "I just don't buy that. I don't believe that China's economic competitiveness has anything to do with their sort of their way of testing and and teaching students." Did you find that other people also were able to see through that one um, more easily, maybe? Well, what's surprising is the degree to which that mantra is still chanted, even though it's demonstrably tr uh, untrue. Um, Richard Murnane tells us that we don't have the kind we can't expect to have job openings in the high skill, high professional areas. Um, and I think anybody on the street knows that the economic problem is due to the banking practices, mortgages. And if you want to talk about the, the real problem here is the offshoring of jobs and uh, sending jobs for engineers for $15,000 in India versus $75,000 here. And um, I think we have to really look at that and be honest about it. That That's more of a problem than uh, education happens to be. Well, I have a lot of fun things to ask you, so let's keep going here. So would you tell us a little bit about uh, the merit pay for teachers idea? Well, one of the things is that when you started, when the blueprint was put out by the Obama administration, they were talking about teacher pay and the equitable distribution of teachers. Now, that's a very good idea. And there's been a couple of um, <clears throat> groups and people who have looked for hedonic factors and tried to pay teachers more to go into rough areas. There's uh, some experimentation in a number of places and so forth, but not any big, large-scale kinds of effort to pay people to actually teach in the inner cities. But um, when people started doing, somehow or the other, this thing about getting good, qualified teachers and an equitable distribution of teachers, 
morphed into performance pay, which morphed into value added, which morphed into let's subtract test scores from last year to this year, and uh, then we're going to uh, base teachers' pay and their evaluations on this. Well. That sounds logical, except that it's got a couple of problems with it. The first is that no one who's actually worked in a school would think for a minute that uh, increasing test scores is exactly the primary purpose of schools, and in fact, our most valuable teachers may be working <coughs> with their neediest uh, children. And so they may not be seeing the same kinds of test scores that, that are there. Um, Roland Fryer, the National Bureau of Economic Research, an economist within New York City, uh, just finished looking at 20,000 teachers in 200 schools uh, with a performance pay system, and found out that there had no effect on test scores, uh, on dropouts, on teachers staying in the school, job satisfaction, or student behavior. And in fact, they found that achievement decline. Well, so much for performance pay. It just doesn't seem to work. And uh, But yet, nevertheless, we see Duncan uh, continuing that kind of orientation. When we went, and, and Derek Briggs at the University of Colorado actually did a great piece of work on reanalyzing the Los Angeles Times data. And this is on the website as well. And basically, when we looked at the data, we came up with a very obvious conclusion that there was such huge variation uh, in the data that uh, it would be hard to draw any justifiable conclusions. And we weren't able to replicate the data exactly as they were having it. And one thing we found out is that they used just one year of we did it with one year of data, and then we used it with three years of prior data on the teacher. And by changing from the one year that the Los Angeles Times used to evaluate teachers to three years of data on these elementary teachers, that's the only place we had data is fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, does, uh, because they're the only ones that have common tests and common teachers which is a real problem for any performance-based system, by the way. But what we found out was that uh, that changed the, in 50% of the cases, that changed the classification of the, of the teacher. And uh, that's pretty, pretty huge variation for a system that uh, affects your livelihood, whether you're fired or what have you. And it's just not a system that's proven workable. So Bill, I don't want to jump too far ahead because I do at the end kind of want to, I would like to talk about how we move forward. But it, it, at this moment, there's a very significant question, which is if, if it's a compelling story to blame teachers and if it is uh, compelling, uh, if it's a compelling story that we should be able to compare and people think we should be able to compare, how do you get away from that kind of thin and surface level dialogue to something more substantive? Well, uh, one of the things that uh, I would say is it's because we have the wrong narrative, is that um, and Joan Didion uh, wrote about this, really, uh, and as a nation, we seem to have lost our narrative. And 
in which we the narrative used to be that we would have the American dream that all would be civic virtue, we'd have democracy, equality, the public good, etc. But now it's individual goods, it's privatization, it's sorting, it's um, competition, it's getting yours it's, uh, at the expense of others, it's segregation rather than integration. And it's like um, we've really lost the sense of what we're about. And until we, and that's what we must advocate for, and that's what we must be is we must give a broader vision of education that really talks about the moral imagination, character skills, intellect of children, uh, inviting them into the conversation, and making good citizens of them. Uh, the Vermont Constitution says that the purpose of education is civic virtue and to prevent vice. Uh, not to compete with the uh, foreign nations, and that's what education is about. And so I think what we really have to do, and perhaps we'll get past this, these troubled times in our country and in our world, but we have to start thinking of the common good of working together. And until that, we're going to be stuck with uh, ersatz kinds of images and visions of competing uh, rather than building together. That's our core problem, and that's what we have to really talk about. The research, whether it's, and I'd just go to the pizza data, the 15-year-old uh, data uh, program for international student assessment. And those nations that had more equality and gave greater opportunities to all their children score higher on standardized tests than what we do. And so uh, it's not only the social good, it's good education that we have to be talking about. And that's what we have to advance. That's going to take a political change. That's going to take a, a bit of political courage. And it's going to take some political conviction. That sure feels like a tall order. So, um, But a necessary one. Well, you're reminding me a lot of the kind of dialogue I had with my own parents when I went to college. And uh, for me, it was, a, it was a, a, uh, an important discussion about the liberal arts and, and what I was doing and why I was going to school. Um, and so what you're, what you're saying uh, reminds me very much of that sort of justification for the liberal arts, especially if you think of the word uh, liberal from liber and Latin meaning to free or the I know that wasn't the original meaning of uh, liberal arts. It was those who, who were free. It was the yes. things that were studied by those who were the free uh, citizens. But it does feel as though that idea of education as something that frees you um, has really been categorized mostly as an economic benefit. Yes, and where in the world did we lose our way? And where, where did we lose our narrative? And why did we reduce things? Or why did we let the economists seize things and translate everything into a profit motive? Um, and profit motives in and of themselves um, just simply don't do the job. It's, it's basically an amoral system. It's not an immoral system, but it just has no values other than the accumulation of more wealth. And for immoral people with an amoral system, then you have bad results. And I give you the achievement gap as an example of this. Um, 
there have been gains for all groups in national assessment scores, but we've not been closing the achievement gap. And contrary to myth, uh, children of color and children in the cities are are not getting more money for their education. In fact, on average, they're getting less. And so we have a real equality uh, kind of issue here that we're just ignoring. So Bill, let's uh, move to standards if we could. Do you want to talk about um, that particular topic? Well, I think we have some in terms of uh, where do they come from and where they benchmarked would be one of the biggest questions that I have here. And like I say, is just simply increasing the standards and um, asking people to jump higher within the same amount of resources and the same amount of uh, circumstances just isn't doing it. If we want kids to really excel, we're going to have to do something about the conditions in which they live. There's, very There's a limit to what education and pedagogy can do by itself. If we looked at uh, this is a little bit off of standards, but we can come back to that, is that if we looked at the social capital that a child brings to the school, that's going to account for 50% of test scores. And 25%, we can say roughly, is individual capital that the individual student brings in terms of their abilities, talents, and what have you. And the other 25% is pedagogy, uh, teaching better, teaching more efficiently. There's very little that we can do to improve what we're doing in the sense that uh, schools are fairly efficient operations anyway. But you need to deal with the social capital uh, kind of questions. In Montgomery County, Maryland, for example, is that uh, they have a, it's a natural experiment is that they have a mandatory integrated housing, economically integrated housing there. And so when you have a big development, you're going to have to set aside low-income housing. And what they found out was that with this natural experiment, with low-income students going to school with higher-income higher students, is that they had a better community environment, they had a better school environment, they had higher expectations, and they closed the achievement gap really on the basis of this. They moved four-tenths of a standard deviation, which is just simply a massive change uh, in terms of minority test scores. And this has to do with changing the way that we conduct ourselves as a society. That's part of the process, too. And unless we deal with that, uh, to talk about standards and then do nothing that would deal with the social structure or uh, the impoverishment, we have at this point in time the highest rate of childhood poverty of any of the industrialized nations. Furthermore, is that if you fall into poverty in the United States among the developed nations, you're, you're going to be more likely in the United States to be poor three years out than uh, what you would in any other country. Uh, we, depending on how you look at it, we're either in first or last place on that indicator. So Bill, we're at half past the hour. We're already halfway through. If it's OK with you, I'm just going to mention some topics and, and, and have you give us kind of a response to them. So Michelle, sure. Ree, Michelle Ree and Washington, D.C. schools. 
Well, um, the latest thing that I'm seeing in the media in terms of Michelle Rhee is that maybe some of these gains are questionable. I don't know that this that what was happening there was either educationally right or morally right. Yeah, I think I was reading some things this week as well about questioning the the actual test. I mean, I think part of the message that you give and that I definitely comes through on the website is the degree to which data can tell several different stories and making sure that you are actually uh, being careful about what story you let the data tell. Absolutely. Okay, what about Teach for America? Well, I'll pass on Teach for America. <laughs> I, um, you know, I just don't know enough about it firsthand to give an intelligent response, so I will just uh, let that one pass for now. There is a good report on the website about it. Um, I found it very thoughtful um, and, and well worth the read. Um, uh, I did interview Stephen Farr and actually met him a couple of weeks ago. Um, Good. And um, mm -hmm. and I, I I actually think there again part of the role I think I play here is sort of bridging different viewpoints, and I felt I feel as though teach there are some things that that really are of value that come out of Teach for America. At the same time, I think the report you have on the website does a good job of, of painting a full picture. What about um, right? What uh, about tip? Sustained efforts. Well, sustained efforts is what's, what's really necessary for these things. And when you start looking at KIPP and so forth, is how much of those uh, people stayed there over a long period of time. Yeah, interesting that those two, at least in your KIPP report, I think one of the difficulties is the great number of teachers who end up leaving. And so making it very hard to yes. actually determine uh, you know, the value there. Um, but also, Sort of inherent, sort of inherent in, in that, in, at least in the thoughtfulness of the reports that I did read, was also an understanding that for different people in different communities, different solutions can provide certain kinds of advantages. True. Was that my um, own interpretation more than it was inherent in the material? No, it, it, it's um, it's really there, and people do need to be making their own kinds of decisions in their own kinds of ways, and you don't have one size fitting all. What about Finland? We hear a lot about Finland. Uh, can you can you give us a, a, a sort of your sense of how much we should be looking at Finland? Well, not not a great deal. One of the things that you're going to see about Scandinavian countries in particular is that they have homogenous uh, uh, groups, uh, cultures, and when you have homogenous cultures, you're going to have these kinds of kind of situations. Uh, I think Finland really being ranked number one on the test scores is uh, very interesting also in that they have something like 20 to 30 percent uh, unemployment that's there. And so the question, the, if you're going by anecdotes, so much for the uh, high educational scores means economic development. Uh, that's not the case at all in Finland. There seem to be so many elements to the story of Finland that are, that are intriguing. Uh, one of which is um, the the higher pay and higher respect for the teachers, 
Another is the um, degree to which there's more free time. And it seems uh, a, a, an interest in having the students develop outside interest from school. Um, are there other parts of that uh, with caveats that we should, that we might actually look at and say, well, these are, these are ideas worth thinking about or trying to figure out? Well, uh, I'd go back to your first one, which I think is a very important one. And we get lip service paid to teachers should be getting more pay, and uh, we should be able to attract and keep our best and our brightest. But we spent since 1983 in the nation at risk. It's been nothing but teacher bashing. And how can we expect as a society to attract people into teaching if we? Uh, don't uh, if we don't really reinforce and value them in any particular kind of way, and uh, that's a, that's a very serious problem. I think that has a lot to do with why we have such high teacher turnover ratios. The pay's not good, and the social appreciation is not there, and the uh, accountability schemes are very punitive and harsh. And I speak of my own children, uh, who are both. Uh, uh, engaged in education to some degree, but uh, it makes me worry about it, and it makes me worry about the, the future of teachers and the future of education. Yeah, we had someone in the chat earlier mention that uh, he or she is not likely to be able to continue to stay in teaching just because of the, the pay. What about unions and Wisconsin and the um, um, the connection that there seems to be being made between unions and, and educational problems? Well, I think it's terribly unfair. Um, I read your quote of two fat cats sitting together and talking about things and, and then saying, who would ever imagine that we could ransack the financial service industry, wreck the economy, get bailed out by the taxpayers, and then convince voters to blame everything on the teachers' unions? <laughs> and um, that sort of sums it up is, wait a minute, uh, how did they get vilified in such a way um, that they are the scapegoats for the entire uh, status of education and uh, by extension the economy and the whole world? Uh, that's a little bit unfair. Now, as a school superintendent, um, you, I had to deal with the union quite a bit. And of course, there's a natural tension there. And is there some degree of protectionism that uh, shouldn't be there? And as I did address the NEA's uh, state assembly in New Orleans last year and so forth. And part of my message to them, to the leadership of the NEA, was don't defend the indefensible. If teachers are not performing properly, uh, then don't defend them or just make sure that due process is observed and let it go from there. But uh, I think that they're being wrongly victimized in uh, some places. And at the same time, they need to do a certain amount of housekeeping uh, themselves in terms of uh, perhaps defending practices that shouldn't be defended. Interesting. So we've had a couple of comments in the chat. Um, Katie says, teacher bashing is pushing her out of teaching, not the low pay. 
Well, I would certainly agree with her, and that's just sort of what I've been saying here is that uh, teachers are being bashed, and uh, I don't know what has resulted in places like Wisconsin and Ohio. Uh, I don't understand. We've obviously had a failing in education of one sort. Uh, when the governor of a state cannot even exercise basic civility in terms of the, uh, the language he uses and the way that he approaches things, it's it's just it's it's um, sorry reflection on where we are, and I keep wondering why this is, and I begin to think that when um, troubles hit, some people panic and they start looking for blames rather than solutions, and. Uh, I understand Katie's feelings and uh, sort of commiserate with her uh, to a great degree. Okay, so um, waiting for Superman, Race to Nowhere, The Lottery, we're seeing a lot of movies around education. There's a very thoughtful critique of Waiting for Superman uh, that I read in, in full. I didn't read the lottery one because I hadn't seen that movie. Um, but is there something positive going on that people actually are interested in talking about education? Can we can we kind of spin this in another direction by saying, oh, you know, there may be some messages, many messages getting sent that are not really fact-based. But do you sense overall that people care and the dialogue is increasing? Um, that's hard to say. I, I, I find that, and this comes from going, going to a lot of New England town meetings, is that parents care very much about their children's education and having conversations with them is incredibly important. And they don't care one whit about test scores for the school or uh, international competitiveness. And one example was I was giving this presentation on test scores and so forth and mentioned international competitiveness. And a mother was saying, uh, <clears throat> I don't want my son to be a good international competitor. I want him to be a good man. I want him to be a good citizen, a good husband, uh, carry his weight in society, and so forth. And so there's that stream of thinking that goes on among parents in particular. Uh, the more separated you are from the school, the more that uh, you get this divorced kind of criticism. And, it's, and the Gallup polls have shown that people like their local schools, but not national education. And there's almost like this overarching uh, criticism, which is being done by Gates, Broad, and political actors. But that is not the same conversation that folks are having on the street. That I find much more positive. People do, and, and parents do, get engaged with their schools. So I, I didn't say it, but I think, in fact, um, I would echo that by noting how many times Waiting for Superman has showed here locally. I personally felt the, the movie was highly flawed and, and work hard to help people to see those flaws when they talk about it. At the same time, I was appreciative of the fact that many schools here were actually showing the movie. Um, what, how do you help your local community have a healthy dialogue about education? 
Well, in New England, it's um, a bit easier to do than it is in other places because we have this wonderful thing called town meeting where it is pure democracy that people come out to vote and argue about the school edition or how many buses we should buy or what the budget should be. And so there's more of a natural connection here. Uh, and in most cases, uh, each individual school has its own school board with real hiring and firing and budgetary authority. And so making those connections in that kind of climate is much different than what you would see elsewhere. I think a lot of things, and we just did a recent brief on consolidation, deconsolidation. Um, one of the things we might ought to look at is making schools smaller and more effective and tying them more to the people. The more abstract and large they get, the less connected they become. I'm trying to remember the name of the gentleman I had on the show about a year ago, but it was a, a show about uh, teachers being involved in helping to run the schools. Do, do, have you seen examples where that's also made a difference? Yes. In fact, uh, we've done this when I was superintendent. Is we just turned over the school to a um, group of teachers <laughs> and said, "You run it," and that actually worked quite well. And it worked uh, well in the first years, but it didn't work out long, uh, long uh, over the long haul because teachers found out that. Teacher administration was a school administration was a pretty miserable kind of business that is far more demanding and consuming, and probably the most difficult job around is being a high school principal, uh, more so than an elementary school, but a high school principal. And um, I think that uh, shared governance and open governance is a very important thing to have. And that's one of the advantages of, like I'm saying, our situation where we have very much site-based management in Upper New England. So there are a number of sort of very visible groups uh, who are getting involved in education now. So Gates Foundation, um, the TED organization, uh, South by Southwest, a, a big festival just had a, a um, you know a big devoted section to right, education. Uh, right. So um, I'm interested in uh, these groups that bring a lot of passion and interest and zeal to the conversation, but don't seem to have much of a sense of the historical perspective. How do we help bridge that energy and passion with the kinds of work that you're doing so that they're not just uh, bulls in a china shop? Um, throwing a lot of money around that doesn't actually um, do a very good job. Well, Diane Ravitch taught, uh, wrote of the Billionaire Boys Club, which are people like Bill Gates who come in and make all kinds of proposals. Uh, and Bill Gates' latest was to increase class sizes and pay teachers more. And I'm saying, OK, that just happens to go against basic research. But um, the billionaires, Billionaire Boys Club is very different from a group of people who might want to be working in their neighborhood to build a better school. It's, it's, almost, it's a different dimension politically. And 
at this point, uh, very wealthy foundations and think tanks uh, are having an inordinately strong voice in the reauthorization of ESEA and in educational policy across the nation. And what's troublesome is that's very seldom research-based. And unfortunately, that's that's fighting thing out in the political arena rather than uh, working school by school and with these kinds of connections. Going back to what we were talking about earlier is that these discussions have to get back to root purposes. Okay, what is the purpose of schools? And uh, we're going to have to ask those fundamental questions again about our democratic ethos and what that means to us. We subscribe to it in words, but we don't describe it. Ascribe to it in practice, and I think that um, people are at least beginning to get some degree of awareness that that's the case. We need to start talking about fundamental questions more. We need to do it on a community basis. Uh, I'm not sure in the showing a movie like Waiting for Superman is a very good platform for doing that because it was very less than honest presentation of what the school situation is and what the real problems are. Have you seen Race to Nowhere? No, I haven't. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. I, I, again, I didn't agree with everything in the movie, although I felt that it was uh, a little closer made by a parent. Um, but uh, intriguing and as well, I think, getting some some generating some good discussion. Okay, so we've got uh, a little bit over 10 minutes for q and I'm sorry that uh, I, I selfishly took more time. But if you have a question that, that I haven't addressed that was in the chat, please feel free to post it again or to raise your hand using the, green, the hand with the green up arrow. While we're waiting for any questions, Bill, uh, was, there, was there a topic I didn't ask you about that you were feeling particularly passionate about at this time? Well, um, I would reiterate something that I touched on a little bit earlier, which is um, the lighthouse fallacy in terms of the political actions that are happening is Arne Duncan and President Obama went down to Miami Central to show that uh, the great progress that can be done in minority communities and so forth. And these photo ops, which are done politically and done for television, are, are a tool in a um, political stable and so forth. But when I went and looked on the website at what the test scores were for Miami Central, they had 16% proficient in reading, which had dropped from 21% proficient in the previous year. And then in math, it done better. They had 56% uh, proficient in math, but that had dropped from 60% in the previous year. And then somehow with 16% proficient reading, uh, they had 88% of them who could write, who were proficient in writing. And I'm just saying, what? Um, this can't be, and so in many ways is looking out for these lighthouse examples that people are, are doing and using for political theater. Uh, sometimes the facts just simply aren't with them. And I'd, another thing that we haven't talked, on, talked about very much is uh, the proliferation of charter schools. And if I were in the inner city and I wasn't happy with my school, it would look very attractive, I suppose. 
But one of the things that's clear, and I don't know why charters continue to receive uh, as much attention as they do, but there's just no evidence, no body of evidence that shows that these things work. At the best, you will get they will do equal to and perhaps a little bit worse in the Credo study of 14 states. Uh, out of Stanford shows that 37% of the charter schools actually did worse, and 46 did about did about the same. And what's really troubling to me is not only do they not perform in terms of education, but they uh, increase the segregation that's within a society. People segregate by ethnic groups, by socioeconomic levels, and what have you. They've not shown themselves to be more innovative. They have higher teacher turnover. And um, they also spend more on administration, less on teachers. But yet I keep seeing people push charter schools as a solution. And after 30 years of a consistent literature, I keep wondering, uh, why are we keeping talking about this? This is not something that's panned out. You know, it's come up a couple of times on the show recently. I, I'm going to propose an idea, and I'd be very interested in sort of your candid feedback to it. One of the things that I feel like has been sort of the narrative of our country is that democracy is a process. And so we feel very comfortable with imperfections in the outcomes because we believe it's important to be able to participate. And so we push, we, we try to push down the ability to participate to its lowest possible level so that people can actually be involved in their communities and, and making democratic decisions. Would, is it Sorry. fair to say that we that we struggle, that we haven't done the same thing with education, that we're so worried about uh, equity that we, we, we're reluctant to see education as a process and to allow it to play out in local communities? Is, is that fair? Um, yes, it is, but it troubles me, and I don't know what the answer is either, um, is that why in the world have we all of a sudden had such tremendous top-down uh, punitive sanctions, uh, which has radically changed the nature of education, which was highly local, highly decentralized through the latter parts of the 20th century. But with the accountability movement in the uh, 1990s and then Nickelby in 2001, we began to really go for more top-down and more punitive kinds of things and disinvesting people in the education of their children. And I think that's uh, quite harmful. And we just did a uh, brief on consolidation. Uh, Craig Halley authored that one in which he began to look at things uh, in terms of diseconomies of scale, not only financially, but in terms of, uh, of what happens with children. And one thing that he found in some of his work uh, called the Matthews Studies is that the smaller the school, the lesser the effects of poverty was on, on test scores. It just had a way of being personal and interactive and reducing some of the problems that we see that are social in nature. And so uh, I think that uh, we need to restore a lot of this particular democratic uh, localism, if you will, 
in what we're doing. Now, at the same time, when we're talking about funding structures and so forth, I, it's almost inescapable that you have to go to a high state aid proportion in order to get the broad base necessary to pay for schools in an equitable fashion and have an adequate amount of resources. So it's almost like you have to say, we're going to make sure that everybody in the society gets an equal opportunity, but we're going to also let the local people and the local uh, governance and citizenry have a stronger role in what they have. So we've elicited three quick questions that came right up as a part of this. So. Um, I'm going to see if I can capture them. One was, um, Allison, no, I'm sure it wasn't Allison. Um, gosh, I've lost the thread here. Someone said basically, if, if, if you can manipulate statistics to show different perspectives, um, you know, how do you know what's true? And I was reminded of the LA Unified report. and. If I'm correct, at one point the, um, the the newspaper came back and said, you know, you're interpreting differently than we are, and the response from uh, NEPC was, the fact that we have trouble even determining what these statistics are should be an indication that we shouldn't be relying on them. Is that an accurate assessment <laughs> of what what you said? Well. Um You've got two Maybe or three not, pieces wrapped up in there. Uh, <laughs> right, I'm sure I do. <laughs> first, off, um, first off, is that it's very hard if people are asked to understand what a regression discontinuity analysis happens to be. There's not going to be too many people reading at the end. Um, it's just very complex stuff. And part of this is arguing about uh, uh, what would be esoteric kinds of things. And I would say in the reanalysis of the Los Angeles Times data is that the executive summaries of those reports, so we went over those things time after time after time to try to get them to be where they would be readable uh, to human beings without having advanced degrees in statistics. But and so part of their job really is to be honest translators of all of this work. Uh, what was staggering about it uh, in the LA Times case was that is not it was really how they spun the thing to say uh, when a report said they actually have got this thing wrong. They came out with a. They jumped the deadline in terms of the release date and said they have confirmed our analyses. And we're saying what? Uh, you you just can't get there from here. But for the citizen who's sitting there watching this go back and forth, uh, there isn't much. Uh, you you do have to look at. Uh, Things carefully, and with and another thing besides just looking at the statistics is is to use some certain sort of common sense, and part of that common sense would say, given what teachers have to do, which is very difficult and far more than test scores, is using one set of test scores from one year to the next a real fair measure of what a teacher is doing, and the answer to that is no. And that doesn't require a whole lot of expertise to come up with that, with that answer. 
I, Bill, I was staring at the question, so I'm apologizing. I'm going to apologize right now to InfoMeister. I butchered your question, but we're going to move on quickly. Allison wanted to know, do you have uh, a, a citation for that um, that would show that smaller schools have a less of a poverty effect? Um, Craig Halley, H-O-W-L-E-Y, Ohio University. And uh, he has done a great deal of work on that, and you can probably find his work on the Matthew Studies at the Rural School and Community Trust website. Perfect. And, and our final question here from Dennis. Um, can you democratically make decisions on education if the process ignores research findings? Oh, my. Oh, what an interesting conundrum is um, there's a question, the difference between democratically making a question and, making a, and doing a correct one. And uh, you can see this lots of times in terms of swap-offs that are going there. Um, what it would lead you to do. For example, you could democratically decide that tracking was a good thing. But if you start looking at the research on tracking, you would say, you would come up with the conclusion that it it isn't a good thing for democracy. So you could make a democratic decision to do something that had a very undemocratic outcome. I have to think carefully about this. <laughs> that is a conundrum. Bill, we're at the top of the hour. I want to thank you for coming on the show. I'm using the clapping. Uh, icon here. You can't see it, but I'm clapping for you. Really appreciate your taking an hour of your time to go through the topic with us. Uh, the National Education Policy Center. I'm going to go ahead and put the um, the link into the chat so people can uh, go there directly. Uh, a number of terrific reports, a large number of really terrific reports. Um, everyone that I was interested in, I was able to actually pull up and, and read online. I, I believe you do sell them as well, right? Yes. So thank you so much. You're getting clapping from the audience. Um, very enlightening evening, and really appreciate the work that you're doing and your, your willingness to share it with us. Well, thank you very much, and it's a pleasure being with you. OK, um, Bill, we're going to let you go. Our commitment is to make sure that you don't have to take more than an hour. So feel free to hang up when you're ready. I'll stick on for a couple of minutes to make sure if there are any final questions or notes that people um, know that they can ask. I will get the recording up tonight, and it will be in the podcast stream. So thanks again to Bill. Thanks to you for coming uh, tonight, everybody. And uh, here's the schedule of upcoming shows, including tomorrow's. Uh, which is early in the day. It's 11 a.m. Pacific, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern. That's um, Rick Hess on the same thing over and over. Thanks, everybody, and have a great night. Thanks, Bill. Good night. Good night.